Malif just sounds like a bad infection. <laughs> yeah, it does. It sounds like I need an ointment for that. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Irenicast. We are a weekly podcast dedicated to the exploration of faith and culture. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thank you again for joining us. I am pretty excited about this thing that we got going on here. Um, those of you that are uh, listening to the show on a regular basis and supporting the show, or if you're just finding us, uh, thank you so much. And thank you especially to those of you that have left uh, ratings and reviews for us on iTunes. They've been super gracious, um, just really reaffirming all the things that we intended the show to be and seeing people respond with uh, the comments that they have. I, I'm blown away. I don't know about you two, but I, I've been pretty... Um, Pretty surprised and pretty encouraged by the feedback that we've been getting on the show. I'd like to personally thank uh, the iTunes user Shade Day. They said that they felt challenged without being insulted and thoroughly inspired not to lose their faith, but not to lose themselves as well. And I want to say that that's my process in this podcast. Also, I'm learning how to navigate my faith and keep my faith and, and be honest to my background in the midst of dealing with all of these topics and these conversations. So thank you so much for your kind words and for putting, putting it very well, how I myself feel about the podcast. Yeah. I want to echo that. I've been super encouraged by all the reviews and um, one specifically caught my eye, but Malchus one and uh, this person gave us five stars saying they enjoyed the show even when they are screaming at their headphones, when one of us says something, they dis when one of us says something, we he uh, he or they, whoever this is, uh, disagrees with, and um, I I thought that was awesome. I'm so glad people are listening to us that don't agree with everything we're saying. Like that's mm -hmm. agreement is boring. I think we can all, we can all agree on that one thing. Um, and then this person called out actually two things that I said in um, the militarism episode about the U.S. committing genocide in the Middle East and Jeremiah Wright being a prophetic voice. Um, so in the first account, <laughs> actually, I would, I would love to take this conversation to Facebook because I, I think there's, you know, you can lob different news syndicates at, at someone you're debating with, but I really want to hear more about, um, what Malchus one thinks or whoever wants to, to talk about this and, and really investigate, because I think it's a really good question to ask, like, are our dealings around the world just, um, so let's, let's talk about that more. So that's just a blanket invitation for more conversation. And I'll start a thread on Facebook on our Facebook page. Secondly, um, the Jeremiah Wright, um, thing, Jeremiah Wright said some things that I don't agree with personally, but I think it's really important to listen to the perspective. For example, I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, he's going on record by saying that AIDS or HIV was a governmental conspiracy meant to suppress African-Americans. So while you might disagree that that's, particular theory is true or not, I think you have to listen to the underlying heart of the message that that people of color feel suppressed. And, and how do we listen to these voices and give them dignity and credibility or, or, or recognize that they have dignity and credibility um, and, and engage in, in conversation without necessarily having to agree with everything they said. So I think I would answer Malchus one in the same spirit that it is important. I agree to listen to people that you don't agree with everything they say, but, but take them seriously. So. Yeah. And there are so many, I mean, at this point we have 11 uh, written reviews 
for people on iTunes, all of which are super encouraging, and uh, I've taken something from every single one of them. So thank you once again for uh, showing your support to the show, and we hope that you continue to listen. We'll also, starting with this episode in particular, we want to um, incorporate more conversation into the show. So on Facebook, we will be putting in a continuing question from whatever conversation we have that uh, people can interact with and talk with for each episode that we post from this point going forward. So we encourage uh, people to check that out. We're really excited about hearing more from people. Woot, woot. Exactly. Woot, woot. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. What are we talking about today? We are talking about consumerism, which is a little ironic considering we just touted iTunes and, you know, hey, <laughs> check us out, consume our stuff. Um, but disregard that. Uh, oh, that's interesting because the first thing I thought was, but podcasts are free. Isn't that anti-consumeristic? But still like consuming something. Mm-hmm. It's true. That is that is what we're going to talk about. Exactly what we're going to talk about. So uh, <laughs> on the other side of the music, uh, join us for a conversation on consumerism. All right, so this week's conversation, consumerism. Uh, I figure it would be a good way to start is if we all just kind of started with where we are with this particular issue and how, or, or the lens in which we look at consumerism. So Mona, why don't you go ahead and start? Because I have a feeling you're going to be the most knowledgeable and passionate about this particular subject. So this this topic's really interesting for me personally because, um, well, first of all, academically, I'm doing my thesis on theology and economics, and I also have a marketing background from and a business degree from before I went to seminary. And um, on a personal level, I I just I try to live in a way that is sort of resist consumerism, although I'm not completely strict about it. But I I like love shopping at thrift stores and finding reclaimed items and trying to be as um, eco conscious as possible. So I. I don't know. It's it's weird walking around in a consumer world, like trying not to be a consumer, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I do. And me personally, I have a hard time living in a world where I am a consumer and I live in one of the most consuming nations in the world where we consume items and our e- economics is built upon it. It's very it's always been hard for me to think of a world outside of what I see and outside of what I know. Totally. So as a seminary student learning Jesus's teachings and Jesus's way of life and what he taught about economics. There's quite a bit of it. I've always had a hard time implementing that into my life and seeing how that can change the world around me. But it's something that I struggle to do and something that I think all Christians on some level, at least where we live, um, face. And it's a very important conversation. So that's where I'm at. Hmm. For me, it's been, it's hard not to see this through the lens of the church. When, when I think of consumerism, because honestly, I'm the biggest consumer of them all. I get the new Apple product. <laughs> I am a sucker for good advertising. Like, I can't eat market brand cereal. If the captain isn't on my box, I, I'm not going to eat it. I mean, that's... <laughs> what? Oh, my God. I, what are you, 10? I'm, well, in a lot of ways, yes. Yes, I am. Um, For me, it's it's a... It's a struggle because there's certain things about that that I don't like, that I don't want to care about, but that I do. And that it's, you know, it's better. But... But really where it bothers me and the line is drawn is when it affects people, where the consuming of products or whatever becomes primary over the well-being of someone's life or or anything. So I saw it a lot in in church. I mean, I've worked in church since 
I mean, my whole professional career since I was 18, I've, I've been employed by a church in some way, shape or form. And I can't, it, it was always, well, with the exception of the place that I'm at now, it was always, anytime we talked about church growth, anytime we talked about, um, you know, more people coming to the church, the underlying thing, it wasn't always said, but sometimes it was said, was if we do this, what, how is that going to affect our tithes? How is that going to affect the money coming in? And it, it, over time, it graded on me and it became, it felt like that we were turning these congregants into money. And I, and I, it wasn't in a vicious way. And I'm not, I'm not saying it was like this, you know, that everyone's wringing their hands and how can we bring people in and we don't care at all about because there's some great people, but it just, it just didn't feel like it belonged in that place. You know what I'm saying? That's actually a really good definition. I think Jeff of consumerism is that everything turns in turning everything into a commodity, the commodification yeah. of people and items and ideas and turning all of life into the exchange, the buying and the selling. This person's coming to our church so they can offer this and then we can offer this to them. And the exchange is eventually what matters instead of entities that, that matter, instead of people that matter. It's more about creating commodities to buy and sell. Yeah. So things, and kind of everything, people, making church. Yeah. Art, everything becomes be like a thing that. to buy. Mm -hmm. I, I, so I get a kick out of comedians who are like rabidly atheistic and just mock religion. Like I, like Jim Jeffries and George Carlin are two of my favorites. And I can't remember which one said this, but how come, I, I think sometimes they just make amazing points that religious people need to listen to, but they said something to the effect of how come the all powerful God of the universe is constantly asking for our money and never has enough of it. I was like, that's <laughs> so brilliant, but it's kind of true. Um, and the other thing I think of is, um, and this is something I hope we can talk more about, that economics is the study of exchange. And early economists like Adam Smith were really preoccupied with right relationship within the study of exchange. So really, he talked a lot about our values being evident in the ways that we exchange and what we exchange. And so economics is like this objective science that can be distilled from morality and distilled from justice is a very recent historical development that really the original intent, the development of economics was what is justice within the ways that we exchange. And this idea that like you can separate economics and money from people has been perpetuated by modern science and by churches also in some ways mm -hmm. um, that have really kind of caused us harm in the way that we don't evaluate our relationships and our values that are that are coming to the forefront when we do when we participate in economics and exchange and technology so, as well right our distance from when things are made that we buy and sell we we're not connected to the people that make them anymore and that's just out of mm. necessity you know feeding as many people that live on the planet right now and the way our markets are set up we buy stuff off the shelves and we don't see the hands that go into making it right and so there's this disconnection between people and economics, even on a very basic market level. Yeah, but I heard something yeah. interesting. I don't know how how accurate this was, but it was a TED talk, so it must be hundred percent correct. Um, <laughs> but it, it was it was a TED talk, and this guy was talking about how certain aspects of our technology are kind of bringing us back to that place where you do know the the person that created. It. And one particular um, example that he used was the three D printer and how it's almost undoing the industrial revolution where you don't need factories anymore. You can have local production for certain things in certain parts because that technology is slowly becoming more and more available to everyone. I thought that was really interesting. That's super interesting. And a lot of people are predicting that consumerism as we have known it for the last half a, um, a century is also coming to a close 
um, because of the way that technology allows us to be more personal and more immediate and also because of sustainability and economic yes. or eco justice issues that we we just we literally can't afford to keep consuming at the rate and expanding in the rates that we've been expanding because we live in a finite world and what does it mean for us to live in a sustainable way that's not going to like bankrupt the environment and all of our i mean debt is a whole nother issue but so it's, two two quick examples about what you're saying one i read an article recently that the materials that go into making smartphone screens are quickly depleting. We will not have easily accessible minerals and materials to make those screens within our lifetime. And also, too, our oil reserves are finite, just like you were saying. The resources on the planet are finite. And I actually heard someone make the case, I think it was one of my professors, that if we want people in the future, future generations, to have things like air travel, where they use jet fuel, that's one of, that's the only so far that's the only feasible form of getting jets to fly is, is using things like oil. If we want those things to happen in the future, we have to protect the oil supply that we have because it costs too much money to make oil and um, and gas and, and petroleum, those kinds of things. So instead of consuming like there's always going to be enough for everyone and instead of consuming like there's this infinite resource on our planet, it's time right now to learn that there are only finite resources because future generations won't even have them when we use them up. Yeah. And it's just simply not enough to just recycle and pat yourself on the back anymore. Mm -hmm. Like we, we live in, we live in a state of crisis, not only because of climate change, but from everything that has to do with the way that we run our economies and not to mention a lot of like global human injustice that's done in the name of procuring these raw materials in countries where people cannot defend themselves against uh, you know, colonial invasion for resources. I mean, th there's just so many facets to this conversation. So I, I, I think mm -hmm. I propose you guys that we do a, an episode completely just on environmental sustainability because it's so important. And I recently heard a pastor saying that he is trying to get, he's trying to talk about eco justice in every single sermon because it's still viewed as like a fringe thing. But if we don't talk about it now, it's going to be our lived reality and like 20 years, like in our lifetime, we're going to see catastrophic mm. changes in the way that we live and are forced to live. So, I mean, it's kind of like weird to think about all of like the doomsday stuff, but I think gone are the days where like, you know, the tree huggers are just some weird hippies running around in the woods. Like even big corporations like UNICEF is what I'm thinking about who are trying to implement, like they're, they're seeing down the road and seeing that we are running out of things, not just oil, not just resources, but air and water. We are running out of it. And unless we take really strong stance, uh, stance now in preventing, we're, we're going to be dealing with crazy craziness. So let's do a whole episode on that. But I also want to talk about debt because debt is a huge thing that in our consumer world, in our country, we are so encouraged to live in a bankrolled kind of debt encouraged way. And that's not the case all over the world. It's really not the case. It's a very American thing to spend money that you don't have. And our government does it too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. our whole education system, essentially, depending upon, you know, it's, it's based on how much debt can you accure? And then you spend the rest of your life slowly paying that off, uh, depending on how far you go on in college. Yeah. Oh, like per, per individuals. Absolutely. Like college debt. And, and it, but it's interesting, like if we can see down the road and see in 20 years, we're not going to be living like we do now, but we're still accruing all this debt. Like what, what the hell are we doing? You know, so like what, what I hear with what, what you're saying 
two very basic elements of consumerism that we're coming up against is one overspending the resources that we do have, right? Just commodifying all of it and, and spending all of it and using all of it up. And then two spending resources we don't have, <laughs> right? Those are two elements of consumerism that impact us on, on a daily level in our society. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So let me ask you guys, what is, what is money and stuff to you? I know that sounds like a really basic question, but I think it's something. Christianity is a really sordid relationship with money, right? The, like the love of money is the root of all evil. I think, did Jesus say that? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but at the same time. Maybe that was Paul. Maybe so it's somewhere in there somewhere. <laughs> well, a lot of people say money is the root of all evil. It's actually lo- the love of money is the root of all evil, which mm-hmm. is, I think, a pretty crucial di- difference. But like, have you ever stopped to just ponder like what what is money and what is stuff to us? Like, What does it mean? What is its value? That's a good question. Um, I think for me, it's changed. Well, one of the big things that changed for me was having kids. Uh, mm. How that affects the way I look at money. And, you know, I mean, I would say even arguments when you talk about, well, why do you need to have all this stuff? There's a lot of like, well, I want to save for my kid's future. I want to have a better future for my kids. There seems to be that underlying motivation. And one of the things that I'm struggling with, and I don't have a clear answer for or any answer for really, is what is more important to provide? The fact that I can leave something to my kids when I die, when hopefully when I die, they'll be old enough that if they haven't established a career, they're going to be in trouble anyway. So I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I wonder if it I'm wondering now having kids and being in that perspective, whether that's just an excuse that people use Mm. to justify something they already felt that they now realize is even less important that they have kids and are trying to make it more important. That's really interesting. For for me, growing up in youth group, one thing my youth pastor always said that has actually stuck with me and meant a lot to me is he said, use money and love people, not the other way around. Don't love money and use people. And maybe for me, deep down, creating a distinction between money and people, because Christianity is, at least Jesus, (laughs) is about love, right? It's a love. It's a central unifying theme to the tradition, to faith. God loves us. We love each other. That's that's what Christianity is all about. And when when the root of all evil is love, it's interesting, right? You're not supposed to love something, but you're supposed to love something else. So making a big difference between people and money allows me to keep my priorities straight. Yeah. For me, consumerism breaks that down. It commodifies people. For instance, w- when you go to work, it's no longer about living out something like your vocation or something that you're creating that that you do. Um, it's more you are selling yourself for wages, mm-hmm. right? You've commodified even your identity and who you are. And so when people get turned into, and we were talking about this earlier, Mona, is that Companies are now even commodifying human beings, right? We're breaking down the distinction between money and people, even down to a genetic level. Things that people would have never even imagined you could have sold back in the day were selling, right? Blood, water, mm. we're, we're putting patents on DNA, even on names, right? We're, we're commodifying names. So everything in my world has been kind of brought down to the lowest common denominator. It is all has money attached to it. You know, how much is this worth? How much are people worth? How much is their blood worth? It's it's tough to see people apart from money. And not and just the people themselves, world. but the expressions of who those people are. I mean, how do we judge what the top, the, the best album of all time is? Usually on record sales, like this sold this many records. And um, so even art is becoming 
moving away from this beautiful thing to, well, well, how much did you sell? How many listeners do you have? And it's weird. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you, if you see money as a measure of value, it's like a collective way, like a social contract for all of us to kind of come to a sort of consensus on what something, how much something is valued at, how much, Mm -hmm. what, what worth is. But like you said, Alan, the problem is when you don't have a sense of morality and justice within that, and you don't deeply value human life, you do get a kind of a kind of cannibalism. And I, I know that's a really mm-hmm. strong word, but seriously, that's the consumption of human bodies in sweatshops, in sex trafficking, in, um, in going to war because we want resources and we're willing to kill for them. Like we really, in the way that our consumerism plays out, we really do literally value the bodies and lives of some people over other mm-hmm. people. And I'm thinking of, um, specifically in, um, in, in Western Africa, there, it's funny, like when, when I hear the word cannibal in, in my, the way that I've been raised, like as an American, I think of like these savages eating Western people who like go to missionize to them. Like that was the history that was told to me. But interestingly, a lot of the cannibalist myths and rhetoric come from Africa toward the West. So for example, in slave trade, there was a perception that if someone came and captured your brother and you never saw your brother again. The assumption was that that person was eaten by powerful white people. And so myths of cannibalism actually stem from um, people who are taken into slavery in some sense. Am I making sense in that? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like crazy to think about that. The fact that that we have this kind of like savage notion in our mythology that like there's just this crazy people in the woods like cooking someone in a big cauldron because they like eating people. But in a lot of societies, the cannibalists are us. The cannibals are us. We consume others for our own benefit and for our own gain. Um, so that's that's a really sordid history. That's a really dark, like dark. Sorry, I apologize for using the word dark. I'm trying not to use that to like talk about race stuff, but um, it's really it's a terrible lineage that we have, but it's something that until we like are willing to face it, we can't completely unearth these assumptions and these, the meaning of what we are doing when we participate in consumer society. And it comes down. I I resist this label quite often, but I think for me, this is the biggest spiritual battle of our time in our place. I think that consumerism consumerism is a way of life with a set of spiritual values and I think that Christians have a different set of spiritual values than than just consumerism. So when these ideas conflict, it's a lot of Christians talk about cultural battles and those kinds of things. And I I do not (laughs) appreciate it when sometimes when Christians say that kind of thing. But for me, this specific subject is as spiritual as it gets. So, for for instance, right, we're, we're in the United States and marketing is our way of life. Everything is marketed, right? I'm not I'm. I'm not alone in thinking that we that market this podcast. <laughs> we true. market this podcast. We market everything. People, ourselves, our identities. So there is this powerful undercurrent in our culture that tells us to look at ourselves a certain way, to commodify our own selves, our ideas, everything in our lives. And it sells this way of life to us, even this type of thinking. I think a lot of people get hung up on um, Christianity teaches us not to amass a whole lot, right? We're not supposed to have all of these things and value these things above God. But that misses the point of consumerism. Consumerism is about a way of life. Being 
continually dissatisfied. You're almost satisfied in being dissatisfied. It's mm-hmm. the search, it's the hunt, it's the buying, it's the it's the transaction that matters and not necessarily the things or the people. So for me, consumerism is a way of life that is opposed to a Christian way of life, an authentically Jesus following sort of way of life. And that is a difficult thing to see when in our society, these things are happening even on a subconscious level. Yeah, we're totally conditioned to be good little consumers. Like consumerism is patriotic. Like, do you remember, um, we talk about, we talk about the 9-11 a lot and I apologize if that's like triggering to anybody, but, um, after 9-11, what were we told to do? We were told, told to go out and buy because nobody wants to see the economy tank. But after world war II, go out and buy, go out and buy, like to buy is to be a patriot and to not buy is to try to, is somehow to like revoke your citizenship or something like that. Like in America, those things are the same, but that's not the case all over the world, you know. But I, I think it's, I think it's really, um, it gets tricky because a lot of modern brands like Apple and Nike are the two that come to mind. McDonald's to some degree, they actually have studied religious movements and mimic spiritual experiences in their marketing, and that's where it gets very tricky because if you're seeking religious experience and meaning, and then here's come along these brands that are very astute and have studied ways to get you to buy into them and to their values, um, then how are you supposed to separate that? There's, there's actually a post that I put up a couple weeks ago on the blog that looks at malls as if they were sanctuaries, as if they were places of worship, because mm-hmm. a lot of the architecture has been included in that. Not, not that that is specifically in and of itself wrong, And not that a mall has to talk about God or something, but using a very religious atmosphere to sell something, to sell consumerism itself is interesting. It's exactly what you're talking about, is that consumerism has taken on an overtly spiritual atmosphere in our in our nation. Well, spiritual, but also communal, like it's being a Mm -hmm. part of something and it's tapping on that need. And I wonder if it's if it's more communal than it is spiritual and but only because communal is such a part of being spiritual. Well, you're and you're tapping into something really interesting because part of part of what big brands do when they try to market is to say how can we increase brand loyalty. For example, Apple used to, I don't know if they still do, but I, I worked with Apple people for a while and they actually have official official titles for brand evangelists. Like you could actually get a job as a brand evangelist. They're using specifically religious language, but what they're asking the question is, how do we get people to be loyal to us and pretty exclusively so we get all of their business? And you know where they learned it from? They learned it from churches and religious institutions that get people to stick specifically to their denomination and not to venture outside of it and to be distrustful of others. (laughs) Right? So it's like, so, so so does consumerism affect religion or does religion affect consumerism? There's no answer to that question because it really does work both ways. Mm-hmm. So then so, where, where is, <laughs> I, I don't know, in the, in the middle of all this, and I think this is just from my context of church, is how do I, I had to get to a place where, because all that, I think all that is true, but then where's the motivation? Like, is this just, you know, is it a Mr. Burns type thing where someone's, you know, sitting down with Smithers and saying, I'm doing all this with the, just the evilest in, of intentions? Or is it just the system itself that, that encourages this, but they're still well-meaning behind those actions? And, and, and then where do we fall when, we, when it's gray and how do we, is part of keeping ourselves sane trying to assume that at least the majority of the people are, they have well intentions, they're just in this system that, that gives them no other choice? 
Mm. Those are great questions. What do you think? I don't know. I, well, I, for me, I have to be at a place where I'm, I'm assuming the best because most of my experience with this has been in church settings as far as bringing people in and how do we how do we get people to come to this event and how do we keep our tithers and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I know these were good people, but sometimes the methods, they, they didn't feel right. Mm. Well, I think it's a legitimate thing to want a cohesive community, right? To have a community that you can rely on that is there for you that won't fall apart at like a moment's notice. But, um, but consumerism doesn't do that, right? That, that I, I know we're probably talking about. I, I guess I'm thinking to, of loyalty in particular, mm-hmm. but you, you're right. Consumerism, it does is like you need many options and you get to choose because you have the right as the center of like your own universe. But even that loyalty is conditional as far as like, well, um, if this person's only spending this much, then we don't need them to be loyal. But if they're spending this much, then we really want them to be loyal. True. Can I, can I posit something? Sure. <laughs> of course. So, um, I've read from Stephen Mott and Ronald Sider. They came up with the definition of just economics. And it's this justice demands that every person or family has access to the productive resources. That's land, money, knowledge. So they have the opportunity to earn a generous, generous sufficiency of material necessities and be dignified participating members of their community. (gasps) You commie pinko bastard. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to submit that consumerism does not allow that because by definition, consumerism is the commodification of everything. So when resources are commodified, like like you said earlier, water, um, when companies are allowed to spend a community's water and sell it to, to suck it up and, and sell it back to them, when companies are, are buying the rights to put pollutants in the air and things like that, you have taken away the resources from the people and have put a price tag on it and they no longer have access to those things. So consumerism is a, is a problem for me, not in the sense that, you know, can we buy things or not buy things? It's like, what, what kind of a world are we setting up and who has the right to put a money value, a money sign on something and not on something else and then sell it to the people and then make even life itself a function of buying and spending. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking of a really, um, horrifying example. I I just had a bunch of friends get back from um, a a trip to Israel and Palestine, and they visited all these Palestinian refugee camps and and homes. And not only are water rights really restricted in that area, and and this is a very complex situation, no matter how you fall on this, um, I just want to point out one small aspect of this, but Palestinians are actually prevented from collecting rainwater on their own Mm -hmm. roofs. And that to me is like the sign a sign of the times. It it is a sign that we have gotten so inundated with 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 who is powerful and who gets to set the rules about how land and water and basic human necessities are used. Mm-hmm. That we that that scene is just fine and dandy to some people. That the basis of all organic life, in particular, fresh water. Like I, what are our bodies like seventy percent water? To block someone's access to that, to me is horrifying and sinful and wrong. And and I also heard someone recently saying that mm-hmm. that perhaps land ownership in general is sinful. Like I, I think unless we're willing to really look at these ideas and think about them, like we're really not doing our job to combat what some would argue is um is idolatry and the consumption of bodies like we were talking about earlier. So I I personally don't think land ownership is a sin and I don't believe owning things are are wrong or anti-Christian. I I think that Jesus was not about these like 
unrealistic ideals. We, we talked about this in an earlier episode. I think that Jesus taught a different way of being in the world. And I think you can get that different world even when you are owning certain things. So uh, I'm, I'm interested in what does justice and just economic systems look like, but I don't think you can jettison ownership of things or um, the need for hard work or things like that. I know that those are all laden with different conversations, but yeah, totally. I, I'm really interested in. So you guys know me. I love the Bible, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's how I love Jesus's teachings. And um, a lot of people point to the verse that says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, right? Don't don't store up for yourselves treasures where moth and rust and thieves break in and steal um, your things. And, and they're there's a taught in some some churches, you're just not supposed to own a lot of things. That's that's what it comes down to. But again, that is for me missing the point of what Jesus was was even talking about. Um, we talked in an earlier episode about how Jesus identifies one thing, suggests another and then suggests a third way. Well, in in his teachings about money, Jesus talked about um, where where your spending habits show up. That's where your heart lies. And Jesus talked over and over about like the kingdom of heaven, right? So when Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in in heaven, he's not necessarily saying there's this afterlife. You guys could probably both agree with me. A lot of Christianity is geared toward the afterlife, right? Probably too much so. Would oh, you yeah. agree with that? Uh-huh. Like popular right? Christianity? Yes, popular yeah. Christianity, po- popular or even evangelicals. And we, we talk about this future world in heaven, you know, don't. Don't store up treasures on earth because you want to have rewards when you get to heaven. Jesus preached constantly that there was a kingdom of heaven that was already at hand, that was invading our world, that was being set up on this planet at this time. So when Jesus talks about storing up treasures for yourselves in heaven, it's this kingdom that is already here and is um, it's like this vision of a world and of a kingdom that is ruled by God and God's sort of economics. So investing in your treasures that are in heaven is actually investing in this world right now in the ways of that kingdom, in just economics, in generosity and enough for everyone. That's what Jesus was preaching. So it's not this, you have to live this life of asceticism and and not own anything. It's like you should be investing your money and your time and, and your economic policies in things that make this just economy right now, which is, like we said earlier, giving people the access and the resources to things that probably shouldn't be commodified. You know, and what you're saying is interesting because I've always had a really hard time with that storing up treasures in heaven thing. Because I'm like, okay, we're trying to teach people to be less selfish. So, okay, don't have earthly goods, have this super shiny treasure in heaven and he, he, he store that up. Like mm-hmm. that to me never lent to me feeling less selfish. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, well, you're still, you're still doing it out of a selfish motivation. You're still doing it for yourself. Yeah. Well, I don't know. In, in my context and uh, Moni, you can probably relate to this within Pentecostalism. That verse is always tied to some illustration about these two people that go to heaven. They're showed to their empty lot on heaven and and one person has like all these gold bars and material to build their their mansion and then the other one looks over and it's like two two by fours and <laughs> the person's like well what do i do with this and god said i only i only gave you what you sent me and it's just this like <laughs> so <laughs> that verse is always connected carpenter. with yeah like is is it, it was applying like 
yeah, you don't save up all your money, but if you do all these good spiritual things, then you're saving up your money in heaven. We got to keep up with the Mother Teresa Joneses who are like living in these crazy ass houses. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think. So what does it mean to amass either in this life or the next? What does it mean to amass something for yourself and wealth for yourself? I mean, we all know, like we always hear you can't take it with you, but like that kind of messes with that, I guess. And what does it mean to have things and like, why, why are things? things. I know we need things to live. Like I'm thankful for my things. I'm thankful for the mic that's recording my voice right now that I bought with the money <laughs> that I made, you know, so you can't completely get away from it. But I guess I, okay. So I guess my question is if consumerism were a religion, what would its values be? Cause we've re- been referring to consumer values for a while. What, what are, what are consumer values? The selling of the good and the bo- purchasing of the good is the ultimate value in consumerism. But okay, so if if the ultimate value is just to buy and sell, then what? Why would I do it just to do it? Because you exist when you buy and sell. <laughs> Whoa, that's freaking deep. That no, no, that, that that's what consumerism is. Is when you purchase, you are, you are act, you are acting out your existence. Your whole point is to buy and sell things to be a protective part of society, and you don't exist if you're off the grid. Yeah, it's your spiritual discipline, right? Like within Christianity, people say, read your Bible, pray, it'll it'll give you the certain amount of feeling. So if consumerism were a religion, your spiritual practice would be to buy so that you can get that feeling and feel like you're connected to what you believe. So this is beyond seeking happiness. This is just trying to validate your own existence as a human. Yes. That's yeah. crazy. And I I think your efficiency point is interesting because efficiency supposedly guarantees like cheap prices so that consumerism can continue. But it doesn't look at, like you said earlier, Alan, like who's making the things, like whose hands are actually touching the things Mm -hmm. that are made Um, because efficiency would encourage us not to look mm -hmm. at those things. So so let's let's take a real world example of what you just said. Uh, It was Maytag, I believe, that built a factory in middle America. I'm not sure exactly where. And they created this out of this small community, a huge source of jobs. All these people worked there and they actually their their boards got together. The board of Maytag decided that it would be cheaper to move it to Mexico. This is, this is a couple years back. And they the community got together and said, if Maytag moves out of our community, it will destroy us. We will lose all of these jobs. It will literally bankrupt our, our whole community, all of us, all these families. So they got together and raised like two million dollars to just give over to Maytag to keep them in their city because they they needed those jobs. Maytag moved anyway, moved barely across the border into Mexico because they could save a certain amount of money on production for their their dryers and their washers and those kinds of things. So they built this city out of nothing in Mexico, had built another community for a couple years and had people move and build houses and create this city in Mexico. And then they made the decision again that they could be even cheaper to move it to an Asian country. So they picked up and left and literally decimated a community in Mexico. When the production of goods becomes about efficiency and becomes about market shares and how much money can we make, the the real world cost to human beings and to communities does not even enter into the conversation because the bottom dollar and the efficiency is what matters not people, because people are a commodity just like anything else. So the makers, the people who are putting the raw inputs in to make these products, they are bearing part of the cost that the consumers get to benefit from. So like if I can buy a $200 dryer, um, 
the real cost of that item does not include the people who suffered to make it it, Mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes. So yeah, you're, I mean, you're pointing to something really, really important. And this has occurred like thousands of times. I, I want to say I read a figure, I'll have to validate this, but I read a figure recently that said something like in the last decade or two, we've lost 50,000 factories in the US. So we really are shifting from a a country that makes things and sells them to a country that just offers services and food basically, like not even stuff that lasts. So that's like maybe a whole different conversation. But what you're pointing to is that this doctrine of efficiency hides a lot of realities like from the consumer, right? Mm -hmm. And, And I can't even imagine what a better world would look like. Because I was, I, I've been born into this system. It's how could someone make the decision to not make more money? You know what I mean? How could a company be run on principles that is not like, hey, we can make better money, so let's just pick up and move? Well, yeah, they have you to. They, I mean? They're responsible to their shareholders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who are who are ever incre- and demanding more profits? And if that's the system we work in, or like, for example, you get a CEO that like makes ten million dollars a year and probably is only going to be in the job for about a year or two because it's. It's so demanding and unethical or, or whatever the reason is, or people, the shareholders get tired of them and boot them out or after a while, but they really, they really only have to answer to people for a year or two. They're, they're, they're making decisions based on that timeline, not on like the entire lifespan of the company or the greater species of humans that they should be <laughs> answering to. Right. So how is that even possible? So how like, do we, what do we I mean, honestly, like we live in a country. Yeah, exactly. Our whole system is based on that. So, and we can do what we want. Like we can think in terms, ethical terms, as far as knowing what we're buying and what we're doing. And, and eventually maybe that'll make a difference over time. Um, But if we're in the business of marketing, I mean, part of that is masking the truth, you know, like making something sound better than it really is. Uh, So how, like, I don't know. It, it it almost seems, I don't well, know. There, there was a really specific period in the 80s under Reagan that we deregulated so many industries in the interest of increasing, increasing capitalistic gains and letting markets just kind of do whatever they want. So this idea that markets will self-regulate and will be just over time, just given enough competition. So we, we actually have gutted governmental regulation on a lot of these corporate um corporations and corporate practices. And now down the line, 30 years later, we have corporations or people, my friend, and, and really corporations have the same, if not more rights than human beings, because they have money to buy voice in, in politics and so on and so forth. So I think when we're talking about, um, these issues, like it has to go way beyond personal, um, like what consumers demand, which consumer demand, like you have a powerful voice as a consumer to raise hell and to make changes. Like people don't realize actually signing petitions and doing stuff like that and changing your buying patterns does have a huge influence that people don't wield often enough. However, there is a level that the government should be protecting the people as well. And if our government is failing, then we need to look at our policies. So there's really two avenues that we can implement that just kingdom, right? The the, the just economics that gives people resources to live um, their lives in a sufficient way. And that's on a personal level and on a governmental level. And yeah. we can do all sorts of things that actually have a real world effect right now. And we don't have to choose to buy into a consumeristic way of life. It's super hard because we live in such a market driven uh, society, but you don't have to live that way. We can take even some steps, right? We can even take a few steps in the right direction it's better than not trying at all. 
Yeah, and I think there are some big movements like maker culture, fair trade, buying local, um, farmers markets. These are all ways that you can get involved in a local level to try to shift consumer patterns with your personal finances and with your personal energy. So that's cool. That's cool that there's something that we can do. Um, and But something I get frustrated with maker culture in particular, it's great to make stuff. It's great to buy from thrift stores and stuff like that. However, um, it's just taking money out of the economy instead of redirecting money at at companies that really are trying to do right by their workers and stuff. For example, I have a friend who um, was wearing these really ugly jeans and I was like, why are you wearing these ugly jeans? And he said, well, you know, I researched all these jean companies and I found this jean company in like the middle of Iowa who pays their workers $20 an hour and I wanted to support them. And I was like, you go, man. Like not all of us can like sacrifice fashion, but I don't, I don't think you have to all the time. But I think there's a difference between just shopping at a thrift store and not buying new things. But then there's also another level where you can really take the time to research where your things are coming from and, and choosing what values you're supporting in those decisions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And recognizing that just because everything you're buying isn't as ethically as you want, it doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you just say, well, it doesn't matter. Like it's something that it should be an ongoing conversation, ongoing thing that we're, we're aware of and make ourselves more aware of and don't choose to be ignorant about certain things because we like something so much. Yeah. Uh, One more thing I wanted to bring up is, have you guys noticed this rise in what people are calling sadvertising? (laughs) It's like advertising. It's a new thing um, in, in a marketing trend where big companies are basically like using social justice causes to oh. promote themselves and make more yes. money. Mm-hmm. Like, look at us. We're do-gooders. Like they're tapping into like people's very real desire to do good things in the world, but in order to sell more things. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. It goes along with this whole thing of like big corporations who do horrible, have horrible labor practices and then turn around and like support local organizations who need that money and are not going <laughs> to yeah. resist. For example, um, Walmart, who awesome Walmart, good job that they just gave all their workers a huge raise hourly, um, which is amazing. However, their workers are still pretty not paid very well. But Walmart is a primary donor to the food stamp program, the national food stamp program, a, a <laughs> primary supporter, like supports these huge conferences every year, bankrolls a lot of things. And because... They want to look good to the community, but also because their own workers rely on food stamps. Do you see how that works in this weird, vicious cycle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this idea of like social justice mixed with ca- capitalism to me feels even more icky than capitalism itself because it's masquerading Absolutely. as as doing good in the world. And it might because, actually be doing good in the world. It's not that simple. Because again, you're commodifying something. You're turning it into something to be bought and sold. And that is people's impulse to do justice yeah that's crazy that's craziness you're, you're no longer commodifying someone's ability to work like even our desire to build a just world is being turned into something to be bought and sold yeah can, can i can i just say let's create a world where there is at least something something that exists that doesn't need to be bought and sold right what let, is let, that let's thing? just try it <laughs> i don't know people. (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that because the first thing I thought of was Facebook, but then I'm thinking like, well, Facebook, like I kind of manage my personal brand on Facebook. Like, and I I look at how many friends Mm -hmm. I have and I measure my value and and the the quality of my exchanges of like how cool I'm looking that particular day. Like that also like our, I think we we are so entrenched in consumerist mindset and so programmed to think as consumers that even the way that we relate to other people is thought about as a consumer. And I, 
I freaking hate it, but I don't know how else to do it. You know? Read the Bible. (laughs) 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 Screw you, Andy. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think that at this point, we can ask a bunch of different questions and not have a whole lot of answers, but it doesn't mean that it's not a conversation worth having. And it doesn't mean that it's that there are questions that aren't worth exploring uh, real and practical answers to with this conversation. We probably more than any of their episodes so far, we've asked more questions than we've really answered, which I think is a good thing and needs to happen from time to time. Uh, so if at the very least, if you're leaving this conversation thinking, wow, you know, maybe there is a better way I can spend my money or a better way that I can support local businesses or whatever, that's a good first step. And I think that uh, we'll have plenty to say on this uh, topic. So check out our Facebook page for the ongoing question and uh, um, hopefully we'll hear from you. All right. Well, this week, um, we're going to try something a little different. We don't have a a game necessarily, but we figured this would be a good opportunity for us or for you to get to know us a little bit better. Maybe we'll call this segment getting to know your hosts or something along those lines. Or like we need a a celebrity couple name, like Flalmona. (laughs) Oh, like uh, Brangelina or whatever? Brangelina. The two names together? Yeah. What would ours be? Mm. Jamonal. Jamonin. Getting to know Jamonin. Malif. Getting Jamonin. I like it. Jamonin. Malif just sounds like a bad infection. <laughs> yeah, it does. It sounds like I need an ointment for that. <laughs> Jamonin. Jamonin. So no one Jamonin. Something no like that. Oh, man. I like it. No one Jamonin. All right. No so, welcome to our first ever No one Jamonin. And we just figured <laughs> it would be a good opportunity for us to share a little bit about what we like and uh, where we're at. And if you agree or you want to share something from your life, go to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you there. Um, so let's let's do something simple. Let's do something like worst or least and most favorite movie. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very bad at like naming favorites. I always feel like I'm leaving other people out. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. So, so why don't why don't you just pick what is a movie that comes to mind when you think of least favorite movie? And a movie that comes to mind when you think of yeah. favorite movie. Okay, what f- comes to mind initially, but it was actually a movie that I rather enjoyed watching, but it was a horribly bad movie, was Troll 2. Have you guys seen this movie? <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. The one where, the, where the guy in the glasses goes, no. <laughs> there the are one? so many moments in that movie. I mean, I th- okay, so there's also a documentary made about the movie by, by the little kid who's in the movie when he's grown up. <laughs> I saw that. That was great. It's so good. He talks about the movie being made like in three weeks and like some of the characters are people who recently got out of mental institutions that they just kind of found on the street. And the, the, the director who also wrote the movie was like, he didn't speak English very well. So like the script actually doesn't make sense. It's got a horrible soundtrack, like everything about this movie. <laughs> what's, what's the documentary called? I think it's called oh, I don't the remember. worst movie ever made or something. I think so. Yeah. It's so brilliant. I, I just, well, I feel like we need a third category then, like a really good movie, a really bad movie, and then what I like to call an awesome full movie, where it's so awful, it's awesome. <laughs> so, so let's all that's go around awesome and say our, our least, right? Oh, okay. Okay, so that's, the, that's not your least favorite movie? That's, that's my what, awesome full movie. Yes, awesome full. We're doing a lot of word combining here, which is fine, okay. I guess. Okay, well. Um, so we're starting with our awesome full movie or least yeah, favorite? Yeah, let's do awesome full. I used to watch a movie called Lloyd when I was a little kid. <laughs> it's about it's 
really stupid. So that would be my awesome full movie. But yeah. what about you, Jess? I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, my awesome full movie. There's so many. That's like one of my favorite things to do is watch horrible, horrible movies. I don't know. I don't have, have necessarily a favorite, but there was one that I saw that was fantastic. It was called Cobra. And it was with uh, uh, the man who played Mr. Miyagi in the original Karate Kid. And it was, <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds like. Like, it's oh just a big old Cobra snake. But his death scene in this movie was some of the worst special effects I've ever seen in my life. It looked like, you know how if you take a, a pen and you, you put your hand at the end and you try to, like, fling it forward so you pull it back but you have your hand on the other end and you're just kind of trying to snap it down yeah okay that's exactly what it looked like it looked like someone just pulled this snake thing back and it just flung and hit him it was <laughs> it was amazing it was fantastic <laughs> that's awesome you got one alan or no, now you that said i think Lloyd. about it okay yeah. so now that i think about it it'd probably be the movie rudy <laughs> have you guys ever seen rudy oh, dude that's it. a great movie <laughs> it's a what, horrible movie. what is wrong with you okay my family like worships that movie okay. it's the story of this kid who's horrible at football but he tries super hard and he goes to notre dame like the and he gets to play in the very end no and i remember like te- tearing dude, up it's when based I was on a, a true story yeah, yeah but it's a horrible movie it's now I, I went back and watched it it's pretty it's bad. not the little engine that could the little <laughs> engine that could like accomplish something this guy was patronized by being in one play when the team was already winning that's not good <laughs> That's not uh, good. It was his dream, you guys. It was his dream. It was his dream to be patronized and be tapped on the head. <laughs> oh, little buddy, you can do it. No, <laughs> this is not a good movie. So wait, Alan, is that a, like one of your least That's favorite? Awesome full. Awesome no, full. So awesome it was so bad you, you really liked it. You have it. to derive pleasure but it's from so an awesome bad that it's movie. Good. Okay. 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 Right. So my my least favorite is Titanic. I flipping <laughs> hate the movie Titanic. Really? You know why? Yeah. Be, well, okay. One of my friends in junior high when this came out. Saw the thing like 12 times and said she cried every time. I think she might have had other stuff going on. Anyway, she built this thing up for me and I went to see it. And half of the freaking movie was just them running through the bowels of the boat while like water inched higher and higher. But it was like in real time. Like I had a real time sit through this boat sinking. I was just so over it. I was like, why do people love this movie? I just don't understand. (laughs) I am proud to say that I've never seen it. What? I've never seen it, and I do not plan wow. on doing it. Save yourself the trouble. The boat sinks, and everyone dies. <laughs> not everyone. Well, my, my least my least favorite movie would be License to Wed with Robin Williams, John Krasinski, and Mandy Moore. Oh, I thought that was cute. Why do you hate oh, it? That was bad. I didn't because like it either. Because of the camera work, it, the, there's two things that bother me the most. The first is camera work. You're expecting good movie. camera work from Hold a on. rom-com? It is the first movie in my life where I was like, Wait a minute. And I've seen things like Cloverleaf and, you know, Blairbridge Project. But this this one, it, the cuts and like the shaky camera and stuff like that. It was the first movie where I was like, wow, I'm actually watching a movie. <laughs> this is horrible. I can't I can't look past the fact that the camera work is so horrible. Moulin Rouge did that for me. I felt sick really? because of the camera work in that movie. But I think that's intentional. They want you to feel like you're always moving. Maybe but that's it, what I, they wanted in License to Wed, too. <laughs> I, I don't think they probably thought that. No, Robin Williams. <laughs> I, I love Robin. I loved Robin Williams. I love like Patch Adams and all of his early movies. But in yeah. that movie, he was way too over the top to the point where like I it was almost unwatchable. Watchable. It was pretty okay. bad. That's fair. That's mm-hmm. fair. How about you, Jeff? What's your least favorite? Um, you know what? I'm gonna go with uh, James Cameron again. Uh, Avatar. Really? No, I did not oh. think it was that great. I thought it was a uh, it was um. A plot that really wasn't all that original. I don't think they brought a really good take to it. The special effects were nice, but 
everything about it, I was just like, I was sitting in the theater and I was just like, eh, this is this is not that great. Uh, I did not like it. I thought it was, I thought it took a good message that the whole like ego thing, and I thought it told it in 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 a way that was too straightforward. There wasn't any like preachy. art. Yeah, it was very preachy, and it, it, it's it, the Pocahontas it, we deserved. All no, right, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> It was Pocahontas, Fern Gully, whatever. Like all those. It was the same movie. Like, it just wasn't it just looked prettier and I didn't think it was that great. Epic. It was well, I did not maybe like that it. was also a victim of the hype for you. Did was it hyped up before you went to see it? Not so much. I got most of the hype after it. Because I thought maybe that uh-huh. was it, but I really like I saw it opening weekend and I had heard like it looked great, which it did. Like it was it was one of the better three D experiences that I had, but the movie itself, I was just like it, it almost like it relied too much on that and totally didn't do much for me as far as plot and acting. And I just, just wasn't a fan. Was, and I was hoping I'll to be a fan it. because it had Sigourney Weaver in it. I thought it was going to be some <laughs> aliens homages or something Pretty to it. Fantastic. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't good. I'll admit that for a week after watching that, I, I told Vicky, I see you over and over. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously? Wait, in like the, 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 oh, the, sort of joking, but in all seriousness, <laughs> right? Remember, where they look at each other and they go, I see you. And then I realized it's kind of like objectifying. So that but was whatever. my least favorite part. <laughs> that was so cheesy and dumb. Uh, so great. Oh my God. Okay. So now we've gotten to the best movies. Favorite. What's your best? Favorite? My favorite. Oh, let's go with Jeff first this time. No, Alan, you go. Cause I have a feeling, you know, exactly I, what you're going to say. Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to say. And I think I know okay. what you're going to say. So go ahead. You, you probably do. It's the movie I watch when I'm sick. It's Pee Wee Herman's big adventure. Ah! Oh, God, he creeps me out to no degree, but I'm glad you find comfort from it. It is so good. Um, It's like the Greek epic, but it's like slightly dark, just dark enough, but innocent at the same time. That to me, I find it amazing. It's hilarious. (laughs) This is one of Tim Burton's first films. He's actually in it. I didn't know it was Tim Burton. Yeah, and Phil Phil Hartman wrote it, I'm pretty sure, which is awesome in of itself. Did you know that Tim Burton's in that movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a scene where uh, Pee Wee Herman's walking down <laughs> the, this raining alleyway and a guy jumps up and he goes, we don't take kind of strangers around here. And it's actually Tim Burton. You can like barely see his face, but it's pretty funny. That's I amazing. love that movie. How about you, Jeff? All right. One of my favorite. In fact, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I can't say favorite because that's too subjective and too hard, but. It's uh, from the 80s with Tom Hanks. It's called The Burbs. Oh, my God. <laughs> Where he eats the sardine on a cracker. It is right? amazing. Oh. Everything about that movie I love. I love that the way, the way they do it. you're a the... horror guy. So. Well, so no, it's, it's this great like satire on living in suburbia. And there's so much to it. it. I love it. It is so great. I feel like if I was living in that cul-de-sac, I would be one of – it's just – it's amazing. Like it, it, all this stuff about, you know – judging your neighbors and uh oh it's great you you should re-watch it now i don't know when the last time either of you have seen it but you should re-watch well, it I and really appreciate it for what it is because it is it is brilliant and hilarious and it's early tom hanks like i love tom hanks from forrest gump on when he was trying to be more of a serious actor but i think he's underrated in some of his earlier comedies like the burbs and splash and joe versus the volcano and stuff like that yeah those are some good ones i um I think I'm trying to, I'm reminded of Edward Scissorhands. I was going to say it's definitely like probably top five for me, which is kind of a similar theme about living in suburbia and like all the weirdness that happens. Um, I think my all time favorite movie is Chocolat, but a movie I saw recently like rivals it. It's called Away We Go with John Krasinski. And that's a good movie. Wasn't it so good? I've seen it a bunch of times, but I saw it again like last night. Um, And I just, (laughs) 
I love it. I love that they can achieve like laugh out loud funny and crying yeah. in the same movie that's yes. like very human and real. I just thought it was like super, super powerful movie. I watched so. that the scene where the little kid talks about putting the pillow on the baby's face <laughs> <laughs> over it. That's really dark or whatever. The, yeah, there's some dark stuff. The in movie's it. great, but it, you're right. Out loud stuff in the midst of being profound was incredible. Yeah. I think that it just captures like this desire for home like that we all have. Yeah. It's good. Glad you guys like that too. Yeah, I'm glad so you went with that so over Chocolat uh, or whatever. Although when I hear Chocolat, <laughs> have you ever seen I Love You, Man? I always think of that movie. No, 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 wait. That. Have you seen Chocolat? No. You've never seen it? No. Oh, okay. So have you ever seen the classic movie Babette's Feast? It's like one of the hundred all-time greatest films of all time or something like that. I haven't seen it. It's originally like written in Swedish or something. The 70... There's a version from the 1970s that has subtitles and stuff, but so it's a play on that, but it's actually like a highly theological film, like about faith and culture. So, hey, it's completely appropriate (laughs) for our podcast, but Chocolate, it's amazing. Maybe we should start a Facebook thread about it because there's a lot to talk about in that movie. I've been meaning to watch it ever since it was mentioned in I Love It. It's not froofy. It sounds like a rom-com, but it's really not. Well, it's Johnny Depp, right? Isn't he in it? He's. He's a sub character. He's not a main character. Oh, well, that makes me want to yeah. watch it a little bit more. Really? Oh, you don't like Johnny Depp? He's overdone. He's too much of a caricature of himself now that I just that, can't watch him for any longer than 10 minutes. Oh, interesting. Okay, so he he does not play a caricature in this movie. He plays a real person, which is kind of rare for him, I think. But it is. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's so amazing. Jamonin's top favorite movies are Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, The Burbs, and what'd you say? Oh, the one with John Krasinski. Away, away we go. Away we go. Away we go. That's Very quite a spread. I think, I think we that's a solid, solid three movies that everyone should <laughs> see because they yeah. are they're pretty good. <laughs> All right. Well, Absolutely. hopefully you enjoyed getting to know or knowing Jamonin <laughs> for this. <laughs> so awkward. <laughs> it does. It. it well, it, at the same time, it kind of rolls off. It's the tongue. awesome full. It is awesome full. That is <laughs> fantastic. Um. Anyway, <laughs> that'll do it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining us and um, supporting the show. If you want to continue to support the show, you can always uh, rate, review, and subscribe through iTunes or wherever else you get your audio content. Uh, also, check out our blog at irenacast.com. And as always, we want to hear from you. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast, email us at podcast at irenacast.com or follow us on Twitter at irenacast or especially on Facebook at facebook.com slash irenacast. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thank you for joining the conversation. 